Daniel chapter 1, we are in a little series about exile, I'm looking at, am I a bit ringy, tinny, reverby or something? Um, We're looking at a period in the history of God's people when they were away from Jerusalem, away from their temple, away from all of the things that they knew and that they used to worship God and to seek Him. And they have been taken away to Babylon, which is a completely foreign culture, completely alien to anything they've ever known. And we're looking at what are the things that happened when they were there. During that, I'm still echoey and tinny and bouncy, aren't I? Can can somebody rescue me, please? Um, The things that, that happened when they were there that allowed them to keep their identity in that foreign culture. Because right now the church is in exile. We made the point last week that a period of history known as Christendom is over. And the church functioned for centuries in a certain way. And culture has changed and culture is no longer Christian. It is no longer predominantly governed by the things of God. And sees the church largely as being irrelevant. And the church needs to function in exile in a way that we will maintain our identity and that we will also convey who God is to the culture that is around us. And last week we looked at, first of all, one of the things that the exiles did when they were in exile, when they were in Babylon, they told their story over and over and over again, particularly the story of the Exodus. And we made the point that our story and particularly the Gospels are so important as we keep our identity in this foreign alien culture that we're living in. And I want to look at at another aspect of of life in exile today. I want to read from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put put them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men, Without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Ladies, you can just think among yourselves, if Nebuchadnezzar came to Tandragi, who would he take away with him? But these these were young men who were without physical defect, handsome, and showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. 
Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over them, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Every man's nightmare. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And that was a long time. So you've got these four friends, probably teenagers. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem, wrecks all around him, picks the finest, the smartest, and brings them to Babylon to be trained in the ways of Babylon. Trained in their language, in their literature. It was a whole brainwashing session that took place. And there was a huge degree of trauma for Daniel and his mates as they left and made the journey to Babylon. Teenagers ripped away from their family, from their culture, and thrust into this huge city which was just glistening with wealth and glamour and idolatry and immorality and anything you could think of. Babylon had about 1,000 idol temples at that time. It is just a hotbed of everything that is opposed to God. And this is where these four young men are brought. And you think to yourself, well, that's awful. How could that happen? How could, you know, these are God's people from Judah, from Jerusalem. How on earth could that happen that they could end up being taken to Babylon? Daniel knows how it could happen. And he points it out in verse 2 and he says, the Lord did it. (laughs) It happened because God let it happen. And what God had warned his people about for years and for centuries was that he would deal with them if they got involved with idolatry. And they got heavily involved with idolatry. And God basically said, if you want idolatry, I will give you it until it's coming out of your ears. You're moving to Babylon. And you're going to get your fill of idolatry until you are sick of the sight of it. And he brings, he allows the king of Babylon to bring them to Babylon and set them in the middle of that alien culture. And just note from that, that even though they were God's people, there was still a standard of living that was expected. It was not just a case of, you are the people of God, and therefore you can do what you want, and you'll be okay. These were God's people, and there were consequences whenever they chose 
to live in a way that was opposed to the way God had ordained from them or for them. So this was all Nebuchadnezzar's big plan, brainwash these guys, and probably the intention would be that some of them would be sent back to Judah, back to Israel. That they would return there and they would bring Babylonian culture with them and infect Judah and Jerusalem with Babylonian culture. Some of them would stay in Babylon, work in the government. Some of them would go back so they could spread their influence far and wide using these people. And I want to look at three things that, that we see Daniel and his friends doing in this, in this book in order to resist. This, this is a message about defiance. A message about standing in an alien culture and not shifting whenever everything that's coming at you is contrary to what you believe. One of the first things that happens in chapter 1 in verse 7 is that the Babylonians give them new names. Daniel means God is my judge. In other words, God is my ruler, God is my king, God is my protector, God is my guide. Not judge as in courtroom with a strange wig on, passing judgment, but judge as in book of judges, leader, guide, ruler, protector. That's who my God is, Daniel says in his name. They changed his name from God is my judge to may Baal protect his life, Belteshazzar. They removed God from his name. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. And they changed his name to Shadrach, which means commanded by the moon god. Azariah means the Lord helps. And they changed his name to Abednego, which means servant of Nabu, who was another Babylonian god. And Mishael gets the worst deal. Mishael's name means who is like God. L-E-L, when you read that, it's, it's, it's a, a Hebrew word for God. And Mishael means, who is like God? They changed it to Meshach, who is like Aku, who was a false god. And what they're trying to do with these names is remove all trace of God from the identity of these young men. Culture is trying to drive it out of them. You have these names and you have these identities that show allegiance to God. We will not tolerate it. We're going to change your name. Babylon and Babylonian culture was obsessed with names. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you find that Babylon is Babel, where the people built a tower to the heavens and said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And God in the next chapter called, I'm going to open this door, sorry. Burning up. I don't care if the rest of you are burning up or not, I am. God in the next chapter calls Abraham and contrasts Abraham with the Babylonian aim or the Babel aim to make a name for themselves. God comes along, calls Abraham and says, I will make your name great. I will give you a name. Don't take the name that culture is trying to put on you. Have you noticed in our culture how quick people are to hang a name on somebody or a label? He is blank. She is blank. He's got this. She's got that. Have you noticed that? 
how quick we are to hang a label on people. It's almost as if if we can categorize them and put them in a little box with their label on, then we'll know how to deal with them better. And not only does, does culture put a name on people, but people put names on themselves. I'm struggling with this, and therefore I must be, this must be my label. This must be my name. And one of the things that's really been in my mind this morning as I've been, as I've been praying before coming in and just seeking God about what, what are the points he really wants to hammer home this morning. And one of the points I really want to drive home is who are you allowing to name you? Who's naming you? What names and what labels are you allowing culture to put on you? Reject, failure, hopeless, waster. What are the names that culture puts on us? I want you to look and notice something in in Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 3, please. Revelation 3. Jesus is writing letters to to various churches and the whole book of Revelation is only really understood in in the light of the Old Testament references that come through in it again and again and again. But in chapter 3, he writes to this church in in a city called Philadelphia. And he says in verse 8, I know your deeds... I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus is speaking here into a culture in a city where there's a small number of his people who are standing faithful to him. And it's very similar to the culture of Babylon that Daniel and his friends were in. And he says, I know you have little strength. I know there's only a few of you. I know you're small in number, but I also know that you're standing your ground. You're not denying my name. And he says to them in verse 12, at the end of that short letter, he says, to him who will overcome, in verse 12 and and further on down the verse, he says, I will also write on him my new name. You have an option. Now listen to me. You have an option as to who names you. Babylon, the culture we live in that is completely opposed to God, will continually try to name you and put a label on you and drive everything of God out of you and cause you to take on an identity that is not God's identity for you. This is so important. I see this in school so much with teenagers. They are so quick to say, I am whatever. So quick to say that. Not I struggle with, but I am. Culture putting an identity on them. Who is naming you? What names is culture putting on you? Can we stop for 20 seconds and pray? Just allow the Holy Spirit maybe to 
to speak into your own. I don't want anybody saying anything. Just in, just in the quietness of your own heart. Let's pray. Father, Holy Spirit, I ask that, that just now you would reveal the names to, to the hearts of people here that culture is trying to put on them that are not their true identity. And Father, I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will set people free from those labels. That they will determine that as exiles in a foreign culture, in an alien culture that is opposed to you, that they are going to stand and that they're going to take the name that you give them. They're going to take the name that Jesus gives them, which is his name. You have said, Lord, that you will give us your new name. And I ask for every single person who has had a name hung on them, who has maybe hung a name on them themselves, that right now, Father, you would deliver them from it and that they would take on the name that Jesus would give them and the identity that you have for them. Amen. Daniel... Basically, his attitude to this was he never refers to himself as Belteshazzar again in the book. And Daniel's attitude to this is, you can call me what you want, but you cannot change who I am. You cannot change who I am. And you better believe it, folks, in the culture we're living in, you will have to fight very hard against culture's attempts to change who you are. Four people. Daniel and his three mates standing and saying, call us what you want, but you won't change us. Defiant. Exiles who will survive and maintain their identity and carry the gospel in a foreign culture will stand and refuse to be given a name other than the name that Jesus gives. So they will not accept a new identity. Second thing that, that we notice here, and there's only three in case you're counting. Uh, the second thing that we notice is in verse 8, Daniel resolved, love this, you ever resolved anything? Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He was probably about 16 and he made this decision and he stuck with it for Decades and decades and decades. He lived a long life in Babylon. And he made a decision. I will not defile myself. What they were trying to do is get Daniel and his friends to eat food from the king's table. Meat and wine. Now God has no problem in the Old Testament or the New Testament with meat or wine. But he has Big problems with food that has been sacrificed to idols in pagan rituals. And that is likely what was going on in the Babylonian king's court. That the food they were being offered had previously been used in pagan rituals. And Daniel knew that. And he said, I'm not eating it. And not only had it been used in pagan rituals, but if you can remember back to what Greg taught us about a few weeks ago when he was here, when he talked about Mephibosheth, 
and how Mephibosheth was invited to eat at King David's table. And repeatedly, it says in 2 Samuel 9, he ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. If you accepted the king's food, you were also eating at his table and you were identifying with him as one of his sons. And Daniel knows what's going on here in this whole brainwashing program. He knows the food and the wine that is being offered to him is not harmless. He knows that it is an attempt to defile him. And again, to change who he is and to get him immersed into Babylonian culture. But it's only food, Daniel. I won't defile myself. Who cares where it came from, Daniel? It's just food. What's the big deal? Just eat it. Just ignore the fact that it was slaughtered in a pagan ritualistic sacrifice and just enjoy a good feed. We're here. We might as well get the best out of it. I won't defile myself. Won't do you any harm. I won't defile myself. People will think you're odd, Daniel. They'll think you're a bit weird. I won't defile myself. He says, you want me to study the language of Babylon? I'll study it. You want me to study the literature? I'll study it. You want me to work hard in your kingdom and work honorably? I'll do it. I'll work hard. You want me to honor those who are in authority over me? I will honor them. You want me to defile myself? No. He draws the line. No. I won't do it. And the guy... That's, that's in charge over him is a wee bit concerned that if Daniel refuses to eat the king's food, then this official is going to get in trouble. The king will have my head. And I think it's class how Daniel deals with him because we're, we're, we're talking here about defiance against culture, but we're not talking about getting in people's faces. Daniel did not go to the king's table and sit down and whenever the food was set in front of him, lift up his plate of food and chuck it in the king's face and say, there you go, we are God's people and this is how we behave. Daniel goes to the official in charge over him and it says in verse 8, he asked permission. He had complete respect for those who were in authority over him. I wonder sometimes how do we act in our workplaces or in various other areas of, of life with those who are in authority over us, who are opposed to God and opposed to Christianity and opposed to what we believe, do we still show them respect or do we get all antsy and get in their face? Because that doesn't honor God. There is a way to draw the line and to stand your ground without actually getting in someone's face and being unchristlike about it. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine that he was gentle. That does not mean he was some insipid, watery pushover. He could show courageous, righteous anger when it was required. But he didn't get in people's faces and just up the ante for the sake of it because he wanted something to squabble about. He didn't do that. And Daniel doesn't do it either. Daniel's posture before authority throughout the book is amazing. In Daniel chapter 6, you don't... You don't read any actual words from Daniel's mouth himself as he talks about the episode in the lion's den. You know, the, and you, you read about the words of, of the king, of, of it's King Darius at this stage, and you read about the words of his officials. You don't read anything from, about Daniel's words apart from his prayers. 
He doesn't say anything until he comes out of the lion's den in verse 21 and the king has asked if he's okay and Daniel answers, look at how he starts his answer, O king, live forever. Total respect. There is a way to be defiant without getting in people's faces about it and being unchristian about it. There's a way to draw the line and stand your ground without starting fights. Because that doesn't achieve anything. What lines do you need to draw? We'll pray again in a wee minute. But where are the places? And you know that word defy? That's, that's maybe an old word and you maybe don't fully grasp it. It basically means pollute, contaminate. You know, in, the, in other places in the Bible, it's translated as pollute or a stain on a garment. If you've got a nice, clean, freshly washed garment, and you, then you just spot this tiny, tiny little stain on it. That's what the word defiled means. It's contamination. It's pollution. And Daniel sees this, even though it seems a very small thing, he knows this is contamination. This will affect me. This will affect me. Because I'll start to get closer and closer to the king and become identified with him. And there'll soon not be any distinction between us. And, and it'll just go on and on. And then I'll be going to these feasts and I'll be going to the pagan celebrations before them. And he knows there's a door opening here that if he lets it stay open, he's in trouble. What are the things in your life that you need to say, I will not defile myself. I will not be polluted by that. And maybe everyone around you is saying, that's just such a small thing. It is not a big deal. But God needs a people in this culture who will say, I will not defile myself. I won't do it. And it can come in in such small ways. Maybe in a conversation and somebody is being slandered or gossiped about in a conversation. I want you the next time you're in a conversation like that. Not that you've initiated it because you wouldn't. But you're in a conversation that's happening. I want you to hear the Holy Spirit saying, you will not defile yourself. (laughs) Get yourself out of this conversation. Change the course of it or say, I'm not happy with this. Don't defile yourself. Don't join in with it. Maybe it's, it's in a situation where dishonesty is very easy to move into. Maybe it's in a, in a financial dealing. I remember watching a guy one time. I was, at a, I was at a work meeting and it was when I worked for the, the exam board, sleeping with the enemy. And claim forms were going around at the end of this morning meeting. And we filled in our claim forms for our mileage claim and all that. And handed them in. And then there was another meeting in the afternoon. One guy went home at lunchtime and came back again. And when the claim form went round again, he filled it in again. I thought, you scumbag. (laughs) I thought, have you no conscience at all? And you're only talking about 20 quid for a bit of fuel. But I won't defile myself. How many times are we in that, that position, that opportunity, when we could just do something that would a wee bit of dishonest gain? I won't defile myself. Maybe it's an opportunity to cheat. I have opportunities to cheat. I could cheat in school. I have access to things, and I could cheat. I could give the kids an unfair advantage, and I know of schools that do it. 
And you could say, but the kids will do better. They'll get a better grade. I won't defile myself. The school will, your department will look better because your grade profile will be higher. I won't defile myself. You understand? It's not just about being at a pagan feast. It's not just about some massive in-your-face sin. It's all these little subtle ways that culture says to you, it's all right. It's okay. Go ahead. Not a big deal. Let's pray again. 30 seconds. And just ask God to show us the things where that pollution and that contamination can come. Holy Spirit, we ask again that you would have free reign in our hearts, that you would just silence every little distraction in our minds right now and show us the things that are doorways to to being contaminated in this culture. And again, Father, we ask for strength to deal with them. We ask that we will have discernment and insight when those things come, that we will not be tricked, that we will not be deceived by them, that we will not look at them as small things. As Jennifer said earlier, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. Father, give us determination to not defile ourselves in this culture that we live in. Amen. And the last thing, so I I will not allow this culture to change my identity. I think that's massive, folks. And I I think really if I had more time in advance of this, I would have just took a full message and lingered on that alone. That is so important, particularly for young people. I will not allow culture to change my identity. I will not defile myself. Because I want to carry God's presence in this age the way Daniel carried it in Babylon and stood for it and preserved it and held on to it. I want to do that. I don't know if in my lifetime I will see the church rise to the prominence that it had decades and centuries ago, but I do know this. I can remain faithful so that maybe the next generation can see that happen. The third thing, I will not worship you or your gods. In Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds a big old statue of himself, as you do, made of gold, about 90 feet high, puts it out on the plain of Jura and gathers all his officials and nice orchestra to, to play music. And when the music plays, every knee has to bow. And I've got this random scene in my mind from Shrek where I can't even remember the exact details of it. It's been a while, but... It's, I think it's, I think it's the, the wedding scene and they're, they're in the royal courtyard and when everybody sees who it is that's getting married, sees an ogre showing up, there's just total silence. All the you know, trumpets just fade out and everything goes quiet and a bird flies into a wall and drops on the floor. <laughs> I shock at what's going on and I can see a scene like that because all of the music plays and the officials all bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue And then somebody looks over their shoulder and there are three men who have not bowed down. And the the trumpet or whatever it was just painfully fades out. You know that painful trumpet sound when it goes wrong? And there's silence and a bird flies into Nebuchadnezzar's statue head and drops on the ground. And all eyes are fixed on these three men who are still standing when everybody else has bowed the knee. 
and you know the story probably better than, than a lot of other Old Testament stories about these three. And they are, of course, are threatened with the fiery furnace. And I love what they say in verse 16, 17, 18 of chapter 3. It's worth going to. Verse 15, you need to see what Nebuchadnezzar says to them. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And they replied, O Nebuchadnezzar. And again, I think there is respect in that. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. In an alien culture, the people of God need to be defiant. We will not serve your gods. And I love the way they put it. They don't just arrogantly say, God will deliver us. They say, God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we are not bound to you. I think we need to be very careful with phrases that begin, God is going to, dot, dot, dot. That is a huge thing to say into somebody's life. God is going to. That is a huge thing. Now I can say, God is going to build his church because scripture says he's going to build his church. I can say, God is going to be with you because scripture says he's going to be with you. But it's a huge thing to say, God is going to do this. I love the, the, the posture that they have both before the king and before God. They say, God can. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow our knee to you. And God goes on to deliver them from the fiery furnace, but he doesn't deliver them from the decision that they have to make. He doesn't deliver them for that, from that shocking choice. And we've read this over and over again since we were children. And we, those of us that have children, we read it to our children and put on funny voices when we read it and make it all dramatic. And this was horrendous. Can you imagine these guys, the conversations that they had with one another? If they were married at this stage, the conversations they had with their wives. Pleading, their wives pleading with them and begging them maybe. Don't do this. We can't live without you. We can't survive. And they determine we are going to honor God and we're going to trust him. And they face the possibility that God may not deliver them. And still the outcome is the same. We will not dishonor him. And Nebuchadnezzar himself sums the, the whole thing up after the, they've gone into the furnace and the fourth man is seen in the furnace. That's another message. Nebuchadnezzar, he sums it all up in verse 28 and he says, they trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Even Nebuchadnezzar says it. They trusted him 
and they defied me. And there are times that we need to defy. We need to defy. We don't get all antsy. We don't get all snappy. We don't get all arrogant. We know how to speak the truth in love because we are God's people and his spirit is in us. But there are times we just stand and say, no, no. And the consequences, whatever they may be, but no, we're not having it. We're not accepting it. Nebuchadnezzar tried to brainwash them by changing their names. He tried to brainwash them by changing their diets. He tried to brainwash them with Babylonian language and literature. He tried to force them to bow to him and his gods. And they stood and they maintained their integrity before him. And they said, no. No. Exiles that are living in an alien culture for God have to stand up and resist the culture. They have to. We cannot allow ourselves to start calling evil good and start calling good evil. God has not changed. There are so many things in culture that not only is is culture trying to change our names, but it's trying to change other names and trying to change the meaning of words. God's people need to stand up and say, no, (laughs) no, you're not. That will have implications and it'll probably have implications for teachers and, and maybe for youth leaders and all sorts of people. But there will, be, there will be a time and there is a time already that there is a need to stand and say, no, not having it. I'm not going to shout at you. I'm not going to have a row with you, but I'm not having it. I'm not being any part of it. They refuse to allow culture to hang a label on them. They refuse to defile themselves with what culture offers When you turn on the television tonight, if you do that, you will just have a whole smorgasbord of defilement to pick from. Will you hear the Holy Spirit saying, you will not defile yourself. Don't do it. Watch something good. Watch something that's just not filled with all sorts of trash. Don't defile yourself. Don't bow the knee to any other God. Think how brave these men were. Young. And they could, have, they could have just said, surely this culture is going to trample all over us. We might as well give in. Surely there's no choice. Surely we, we should just give up and quietly practice our faith in little hidden corners and ghettos. We might as well make the best of it, try to survive, enjoy the food. But what became of Daniel? Because Babylon came and went. King Nebuchadnezzar came and went. King Belshazzar, after him, came and went. Then the Medes came and King Darius came and went. Then the Persians came and King Cyrus comes on the scene. And two or three empires and four kings later, Daniel is not Belteshazzar. He is still Daniel. And that is the name that everybody in the kingdom uses for him. Whenever you read about the, the lion's den, nobody's calling him Belteshazzar. They're calling him Daniel. Decades in that culture. No temple. No worship. No sacrificial system. Limited access to the word of God compared to us. These guys knew very little. And he stood his ground. And I think he's one of the few men in the Bible. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do it afterwards, not in front of everybody. He's one of the few men in the Bible. I don't think the Bible says anything negative about Daniel. 
You read about Abraham, there are mistakes and there are negative things. You read about David and his life's littered with them. You read about Moses. You read about lots and lots of great heroes of the scripture. Great men and women of God. And there's all these little flaws along the way. I don't think there's anything negative said about Daniel. This man is an absolute legend. He's still Daniel. My God is the ruler. And he is the judge. And he is the guide. And he is the protector. And I will defy everything that you try to do to come between me and him. Let's pray.